Ryan Craig is the author of The New You, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College, which was called one of the books of the year in 2018 by the Wall Street Journal, and another College Disrupted, The Great Unbundling of Higher Education. He's a decades-in veteran to the worlds of business consulting and venture capital, and is the co-founder of University Ventures, which funds projects working to better source the talent needs of a modern economy. That's my nutshell, not his. You can learn more about University Ventures at universityventures.com. I know Ryan from the newsletter to which he contributes his ideas called Gap Letter. And when I sent him a note to ask whether he'd be interested to share some of his thoughts with you, listeners of No Such Thing, he very graciously offered his time without hesitation. The reason that I thought it was such an important addition to the long dialogue carried out over the course of this show is that I think a lot of us have a sense that especially in secondary education, we're still pushing the dream of a four-year college experience as the antidote to a lot of things. But Ryan Craig and a number of thinkers who are both intellectually and, in Ryan's case, financially invested in the new wave of higher ed, believe that while it's had a good run, the story of college as the right stop on a journey to work is nearing its close. I'm still of a few minds on this. You might be too. I hope you'll get in touch. Check out facebook.com slash no such thing podcast and let me know your thoughts. Enjoy the conversation. Check out show notes at no such thing podcast.org for links to all the goodies dropped in this episode. And my thanks to Ryan Craig. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. My first question is an obvious one, which is uh, I have three kids. They are uh, all grade school age. And uh, I'm wondering what a lot of educators and parents are are wondering, which is um, not just how do I prepare for uh, all that, all the change that is to come, but um, the question is, what's the the biggest frame change that I think uh, parents and educators need to wrap their heads around? in order to start thinking about different pathways for uh, for their kids? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think when you and I were uh, were, uh, were growing up and, and uh, reaching college age, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, there was one, one pathway uh, that you uh, would pursue and that uh, one way or another, uh, that would lead you to uh, a good job and a career. And uh, that was, of course, a four-year college uh, degree. Uh, and uh, while uh, many people continue to believe that, the data uh, signifies otherwise, uh, which is that uh, increasingly uh, due to the uh, high cost of college, uh, the, uh, the challenging completion rates uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the underemployment uh, that, we're, that we're seeing, uh, college is uh, by uh, by no means a guaranteed uh, pathway uh, to uh, economic success uh, in America, even though a lot of studies continue to look in aggregate at college graduates and look at what they're making relative to people who haven't graduated from college and say, look, look at this college premium. It's still great. Well, uh, you know, take a look at what's happened uh, over the last decade since the Great Recession and measure uh, the performance of college graduates versus uh, non 
graduates over that period and take into account the fact that those who go to college and uh, pursue and uh, successfully complete college are probably uh, going to uh, come from uh, more secure uh, economic backgrounds, which is which means they're more likely to be successful uh, anyway. Uh, and discount for that, and you'll find that uh, there really isn't much of a college premium uh, today, uh, at least for new and recent uh, college uh, college graduates. And so, I would say the biggest change uh, is that uh, whereas uh, twenty plus years ago, uh, most people went blindly. Uh, into post-secondary education today, uh, your typical uh, student is being very uh, much more watchful and cautious uh, about uh, their decisions uh, to pursue uh, any and all uh, post-secondary education. They're expecting a return. Uh, They are uh, cautious about attending an institution that doesn't have a brand name, uh, that isn't in a large dynamic metropolitan area where there are lots of employers, uh, which is why you see uh, such a huge uh, fall off in enrollment at uh, uh, colleges without brands uh, outside of uh, sort of large urban uh, areas. Um, and uh, they're expecting once they get to college uh, that uh, what they what they study uh, will have some hopefully direct connection to uh, the job they'll ultimately get. Uh, And they're not satisfied uh, by the notion that they'll walk into career services and meet someone who is not from the industry uh, that they're hoping to uh, get into or be connected with, but rather has spent their entire life working in career services. That's, that's maybe okay if your dream is to work in career services, but that's not the dream of most young people. So, um, the biggest change is, is that uh, uh, folks are, are much more much more attentive, uh, and I, I call this the the employment imperative. We've we've now we're now in a place where uh, employment and the first job and uh, knowing that uh, your a good first job is is pretty much mandatory in order to get a good second job, good third job, good fourth job, good fifth job. Um, that that's what they're that's what the focus is. It's a, it's a much more economic. Uh, decision, a much more pragmatic uh, decision. And I, I, I'm, I'm certain we've lost things in the process of the, uh, the serendipity discovery uh, that is supposed to go on uh, at college. There's less of that. Uh, you know, you have uh, twice the rate of double majoring uh, that you had uh, just 15 years ago. And uh, what that means is you have fewer students taking courses where uh, they're going to discover something about themselves they would have never expected. Uh, So, uh, you know, all indications are that uh, the higher cost of college uh, and uh, the challenges around uh, new graduate employment uh, have led to a world where uh, young people and prospective college students are making decisions in purely economic terms. So an elephant in the room for me is, uh, I mean, you, you make no, um, no attempt to hide the fact that you have two degrees from one of, if not the, the most, uh, certainly within, within a handful of the most prestigious universities, Yale university in the United States. And it, uh, begs the question for me of, uh, I wonder really as, as somebody who thinks a lot about this stuff, was it your experience within that institution that made you feel like, um, there's a lot that needs to change or was it a a result of the institution that helped you think the way you are now? 
No, totally disconnected. Uh, the the, uh, the the thinking uh, that uh, I've been doing over the last five, six years is entirely a product of uh, the work I do at uh, University Ventures and uh, our position in the market where we're able to observe uh, from a, uh, a point of intersection uh, between education, employment, uh, and public policy uh, in many cases, looking at the data, uh, talking to employers, talking to students, talking to uh, faculty and administrators, and uh, look, I think we've I think we've uh, summarized the situation uh, correctly. Uh, and uh, in my book, uh, I, I make it clear that uh, it pains me uh, to uh, it pains me a great deal to to say this because I uh, I loved my college experience, and I would wish I wish that for everyone, but unfortunately. It's that wish uh, and the establishment of sort of the monolithic uh, four-year degree as the price of entry uh, to a, a successful uh, economic future uh, in America uh, that has, has caused the problems uh, that we have. It's, a, it's enabled uh, runaway uh, inflation uh, of uh, college degrees because you have to have one. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. And you don't want to price below a certain level because who wants a discount degree? And price is often a, a, a signal for quality, uh, historically has been uh, in uh, in higher education. Uh, and it's created this completion crisis where America has the highest rate of matriculation into post-secondary degree programs, but the lowest rate of completion uh, in the world. Uh, and it's created a, a world where uh, everyone is graduating uh, with uh, a, a similar uh, credential, uh, but without really any of the skills that employers are actually looking for. And that's sort of the, the other big story here. Uh, it's that it's actually not higher education's fault. It's, it's how technology has changed hiring uh, and how technology has changed the world of work. Uh, but if you look at job descriptions for entry-level jobs, you'll see that uh, technical uh, skills now outnumber all other skills, cognitive and non-cognitive skills combined. Uh, across virtually every industry for these entry-level jobs. And there's a good reason for that and a bad reason for that. The good reason, of course, is that uh, uh, entry-level jobs are effectively digital. If you were to characterize your typical entry-level job for a college graduate, it's using some software platform or SaaS product to help manage a business function of some kind. And colleges and universities don't train on either the software nor on how these businesses work. So, you look at uh, you look at employers, and these these entry level jobs are jobs that should be or once were entry level jobs, and they're uh, specifying skills uh, that uh, are effectively uh, requiring two, three, sometimes four years uh, work experience for these jobs. Um, I was speaking to an audience of college and university presidents and provosts a few months ago. And I asked them, how many of your institutions provide any, any training whatsoever in Salesforce? And not one hand went up. And while I'm sure that some of their schools did and may not, they may not have been aware of it, it demonstrates the point uh, that that's not what colleges think they're about. That's not why faculty go into uh, uh, the academy or teaching. Uh, no one is particularly uh, motivated uh, as a faculty member to equip uh, students with the skills that will allow them to be considered for an entry-level job at a big company. That's not what, you know, makes people get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that's the challenge we have, uh, you know, college and universities 25 years ago 
could very well say, look, we equip you, we, we teach you to learn, uh, we train on critical thinking skills, and students would graduate with this macro credential, uh, and uh, jobs weren't that technical, they weren't digital, and employers would hire, uh, and employers would often train. Uh, today, uh, employers aren't willing to do that. We have 7.4 million open jobs. We had over 3 million uh, open uh, technology jobs um, that are not being filled uh, because employers are not seeing candidates with the skills that at least they think uh, they need for these uh, for these positions. College graduates are coming out and they're working retail and food service jobs, barely making their loan payments, if, if, if that. Uh, and not seeing a pathway uh, to uh, the jobs of the uh, of the future. Yeah. This needs to be, this need, this needs to be fixed. This need, and it will be fixed um, uh, because it's not not a sustainable uh, status quo. So the the question is: uh, To what extent, in that paradigm that you described, is it is it possible that employers have just gotten uh, become shitty at training and uh, sort of scaffolding the experience of young people into careers. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I, I think, I don't know whether it's, it's uh, I, I view it as largely a rational response to the increased cost of a bad hire. You know, you make the wrong hire can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost productivity, uh, termination costs, legal costs. <laughs> you have to be, you have to be careful. Um, and the fact that uh, churn uh, is as high as it's ever been your average college graduate um, comes into a job and lasts less than two years in a role. So if I'm an employer, am I going to invest in training so that my competitor can benefit from hiring this this uh, this the, this candidate? That's basically the uh, the uh, the prevailing view is there's a, there's a free rider problem uh, with entry level training. You want someone to come into a job because uh, they've uh, they've they've proven they've done that job before, and in effect it turns the idea of an entry level position into an oxymoron. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's, that's where we are in America. And part of it is due to, and I've written about this, the diminished position of HR within the enterprise um, uh, in America, uh, almost uniquely uh, in the, in the world. Uh, HR is, uh, is, uh, is, is not uh, respected. You have, you know, very few uh, talented people who are seeking to uh, become HR uh, professionals, you kind of fall into it. Um, it's a, it, it's a real, it's a real challenge. It, it's, it's, uh, it's an area where the digital revolution has to this point created more problems, uh, that it has uh, created solutions. I think that we, uh, we're kind of at the nadir, uh, of that, uh, the, the promise of the people analytics, uh, revolution is strong where, uh, data will help us sort out this mess, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, we'll have a, a, a proper uh, and more accurate digital sorting hat sorting you into your uh, proper uh, role and proper uh, employer where you're most likely to be to be successful. Um, but we're not there yet. And where we are is in a place where uh, every good job is posted online. Every online job posting generates 500 applications. Human hiring managers aren't looking at them. They're relying on dumb keyword based screens. Uh, to determine whether or not uh, they should be seen by a human being, uh, and the top of the hiring funnel is is broken. We don't really have a handle on how to manage uh, the middle and bottom of the hiring funnel uh, either. So I understand why we are where we are. It's not that employers are uh, 
uh, you know, uh, ill-intentioned uh, in any way. They obviously would like to hire the right, uh, the right, the right candidates. But on the other hand, not a lot of people are getting fired for leaving a, a position uh, unfilled. Uh, you're, you're, uh, in most cases, uh, commended for uh, uh, cushioning the bottom line uh, mm-hmm. for the quarter. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's the way uh, our economy uh, works today. Yeah. Do do you, would it surprise you to, I'm sure you talk to a lot of educators. So, so there are these, uh, there are lines out there, uh, storylines that I think a lot of folks, um, think a lot about where, you know, there's, there's, it's the gig economy and, uh, you know, young people are going to have seven different careers before the time they're 40 kind of stuff is, is, you know, what most of what you're saying flies against, um, those understandings, how do you respond to those? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that I look at the end of the day, you're going to have a first job whether it's a, a gig job, a contract, um, it's the first uh, first thing you're putting on your resume. And for many young people, it really is literally the first thing on their resume because uh, the rate uh, at which young people are engaging in any kind of paid employment has fallen by 50% uh, over the last 20 years. So I don't care whether it's McDonald's or painting fences or scooping ice cream. Um, uh, and that's also a casualty of the uh, college obsession the parents are, are urging their, their kids not to take jobs, but to burnish their college applications with internships and travel study and really anything other than paid menial manual work. Um, ironically, <laughs> you have lots of employers who say, well, I'm not hiring because I can't find candidates with the requisite soft skills and organizational skills and, you know, who know how to show up on time and dress. And of course, that's what you learn uh, in those uh, in those in those jobs. Um, so, uh, look, again, I think it, it's all completely understandable, uh, as to why we are, uh, where we, we are, but a lot of the challenges we face are a product of this, uh, single pathway, uh, to, uh, economic success. Uh, and just to be clear, uh, I'm not arguing in any way that, uh, it would be advisable to, uh, have less, education, uh, less post-secondary education, less higher education, and the global knowledge economy, that would be economic suicide. What I am suggesting is that the way we've staged that, uh, the way we've consumed that post-secondary education historically uh, is not sustainable. The idea that you should get uh, all, uh, all of it done by the age of 22 or 23, all you can eat in one sitting, and then you're done for life. What I'm saying is what many in higher education have been talking about for decades, which is how do we shift to a uh, modality of lifelong learning where you get what you need when you need it. Um, And that's where I think we're going. Uh, And uh, what we need when we need it uh, probably means uh, between high school and your first job, some faster and cheaper pathway uh, that provides you with the digital skills and soft skills that you need but to get your first rung on a career uh, ladder, again, whether it be a contract or whether it be full-time employment, uh, get some real work experience uh, with no debt. And then after a couple of years of doing that, uh, or you know, two or three or four contracts, look around and then ascertain 
what what's your next pathway right what's what what is going to allow you to build those critical thinking skills cognitive skills executive function skills communication skills that ostensibly uh, you would have developed uh, in a four-year program but this time you'll be doing it in a more directed way you'll have a clear clear idea of what you want to do what position you want to get uh, what industry you want to be in uh, you'll be more directed in your work those that coursework, uh, that uh, program of study is likely to be more applied uh, from an industry standpoint, from a position standpoint, and will probably be uh, shorter and also less expensive. Um, and maybe there'll be a, a third pathway or a fourth pathway. Um, but the idea that somehow you'll be done at the age of 22 or 23 uh, is archaic uh, at this point. It's not true. Uh, and particularly in a world where uh, we're just so uncertain about the future of work and AI and RPA and, uh, and, and so forth and what that means, you'd be crazy to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars and take on you know, huge debt uh, and then make a bet that you're, you're equipped for life with the skills you need. You're not and you won't be. Uh, so best not to you know, bet everything on, uh, on red uh, you know, by uh, the age of 22. Yeah. You, uh, AI... And what was the other acronym you just used? RPA. What does RPA stand for? Robotic Process Automation. Yeah. So uh, the suggestion being that, you know, you're going to, I think what you're saying is you're going to train for a a job that ultimately we just don't know whether it's going to be a human job and and, uh, by the time you finish college. Yeah, but the, the 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 other thing, of course, is that, you know, faculty could say, well, that's, that's why we need to equip you on those eternal skills, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, the skills they say, we, we prepare you for your fifth job, not your first job. And that, that worked 25 years ago, and it maybe worked 15 years ago, but it doesn't work today because you're not getting the good first job because employers have changed, uh, A, what those first jobs are has changed, and B, how they hire for those first jobs uh, have changed. Uh, so it doesn't work anymore. Let me clarify, go to a top 50 brand name selective school, it still works, right? That macro signal remains strong enough uh, that uh, even though you don't have uh, a clear sort of micro signal uh, as to what skills you have, there are enough uh, uh, large employers with good, great jobs who are going to be willing to take a risk on you. Unfortunately, that's about 7% of the uh, student undergraduate population. Yep. So I'm concerned with the other 93%. So uh, this brings up an interesting question that I have. I, I have done a fair amount of work and and had lots of guests um, on this show to talk about things like micro-credentials or alternative credentialing. And um, I wonder, you know, you hear the jargon of stackable credentials all the time. Right. Um Talk a little bit about that. Do you, uh, you know, is is the solution? Um, you've you've said the words micro and uh, several times. It, it, you know, is it a, is it a a digital solution that allows us to acquire and show a validated set of skills in in more bite sized ways that aren't aren't so attached to uh, the university brand? Is that is that the suggestion you're making? Yeah. No, look, I think ultimately, you know, five years ago, I came up with this idea of the competency marketplace. 
where it's essentially like LinkedIn on steroids. Everyone's going to have a competency profile with not, not about experience, but of competencies. Uh, and in, in fact, it, it, it's going to be a long, 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 long list of competencies so long that it's not really intelligible to you or me, but it'll be intelligible to the applicant tracking systems and HRIS systems that employers will be using to comb for passive job seekers. And not only that, but prospective job seekers, you know, two, three, four years in the future, right? They'll be able to see your profile, see that you're completing whatever it is, maybe even high school uh, in a year uh, or two, ascertain that that uh, competency profile is actually a good fit uh, for this particular uh, position based on the profiles of successful candidates in the past and begin to target you uh, based on uh, based on that. So uh, that effectively, think you can think about that as like a GPS for human capital development. Um, doesn't exist yet. Um, uh, I think it will uh, come into existence. And at that point, uh, then uh, the, uh, the, uh, the degree uh, becomes uh, really a, a fairly archaic uh, macro signal. Why would you... Why would you need that? That's why I've I've made sort of in half and jest the the uh, the statement that degrees could become like debutantes, uh, meaning that you know today if someone were to tell you that her daughter is coming out as a debutante next week, you'd say that's kind of old fashioned and elitist and unnecessary. And in a world where you have a competency marketplace, you'd say, well, someone who's earning a a degree uh, kind of seems a little you know elitist and and unnecessary and, and, uh, 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 expensive. Um, uh, why, why would you need to, why would you need to do that? Um, so again, not questioning the value of, uh, the learning, uh, that, uh, one, uh, is supposed to get over the course of 120 credits in a bachelor's degree, uh, that, uh, skill set of breadth and depth and critical thinking and, uh, communication skills and problem solving, uh, is going to be necessary. The question is uh, the staging of it, uh, how you acquire it, and at what financial risk. Yeah, so let's talk about financial risk and um, students students of color, especially. So, um, so there's there's this. We've talked a little bit about debt. Um, a colleague of mine who is a college counselor and a and. Um, actually pointed me to you originally. I think I, I mentioned in my email, uh, Davin Sweeney, uh, runs a podcast. He produces a podcast yeah. called the crush and, and, uh, it's terrific. And, um, he turned me on to the open campus newsletter who, uh, recently did a, a story about, um, debt for black families. And there was this comparison between, I'll, I'll just quote it, um, in Atlanta, this fall, there are about 7,000 undergrads walking around Emory. Their parents borrowed about $7 million in Parent PLUS loans for the year. Eight miles away sit three of the America's foremost historically black colleges, Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark. And right. roughly 7,600 undergrads, their families have taken on more than $102 million in Parent PLUS yeah. loans. That's 14 times. So can you, can you just describe... Um, I'm I'm curious how uh, demography sort of factors into some of your thinking about these economics, and and to to what extent does your case 
or I don't I don't know if you call it a case, but to what extent does your hypothesis about where we're headed um, create a more uh, equal playing field? Yeah, look, I mean, some some would say uh, you're creating a a, a two tier system uh, when you're talking about uh, you know faster and cheaper alternatives to college. You're saying that college is reserved for the elite. Uh, and the alternatives will be for, you know, everyone else, uh, which will, would obviously mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, overrepresented in terms of, uh, uh, minority. Um, my point is that, uh, today, uh, we already have a two tier system. Uh, we have selective colleges, uh, where you have, uh, most of them, uh, have more, students from the top 1% than they have uh, students who receive Pell Grants. Um, and that's not okay. <laughs> so um, yes, uh, those, those colleges serve some small number of first generation, uh, uh, low income, high achieving uh, students. Uh, but uh, that masks the fact uh, that uh, what used to be an engine of socioeconomic mobility has now, uh, is, is, is now in reverse. Uh, effectively, that our system of uh, colleges and universities, and the fact that uh, you need to get a, a degree and better a degree from one of these top institutions in order to uh, really move forward, or to have a, uh, a, a you know a guaranteed uh, place uh, in the uh, economic elite of the uh, of the future, uh, is, uh, is 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 hindering socioeconomic uh, mobility. Uh, what I would like to see is a system of a thousand or a uh, hundred thousand different pathways uh, where uh, each pathway has its pros and cons. Uh, you know, I would love to see uh, a thousand different elite apprenticeships uh, come up where, uh, you know, yes, you could go to Yale, uh, but you could also take an apprenticeship with uh, Tectonic, uh, which has a pretty good brand. It's not Yale. Uh, but it has a good reputation for getting people uh, a great uh, first uh, job in software development uh, at no financial risk whatsoever. In fact, you're being paid from day one um, to go to work there. And it has a reputation as a pathway and lots of, uh, you know, senior technology executives have come out of that pathway. Um, uh, that we, we would do a much better job in terms of socio, 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 socioeconomic mobility if we had that thousand or 10,000 pathways, um, some of which you would have never heard of, just like you've never heard of some colleges, some of which uh, you will have, you will have heard of, and there'll be apprenticeships and staffing models and uh, boot camps uh, and uh, a whole host of uh, alternatives. What they will have in common is they'll be faster. They're not going to ask you to take a minimum of four years, um, which is really deleterious to the population you're, you're concerned about and I'm concerned about because the people who most need a leg up from post-secondary education, the people less likely to make it through four or five or six years of college hmm. without something getting in the way, right? Some financial issue, health issue, personal issue, family issue. Um, that's why most people drop out uh, of colleges. And uh, it, 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 it's particularly uh, uh, challenging with low socioeconomic and, and underrepresented minority uh, students. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that's the challenge uh, that uh, that we have with this monolithic, uh, lengthy, uh, expensive model. Which, by the way, 
originated uh, as a way for the, uh, you know, in colonial America, as a way for the merchant elite to signal that their children uh, were also elite. And so that's why, you know, we have this, this lengthy, lengthy pathway and it's been adopted uh, globally uh, at this point, but you'll find many places in the world uh, that are struggling with the same issue and governments like in Singapore and Korea, uh, where uh, they would very much like uh, students to opt out uh, of the uh, costly four-year academic track uh, towards faster, uh, cheaper, uh, and more uh, uh, pragmatic uh, vocational uh, tracks. Yeah, I wonder what you think of um, my my work. Most recently, has been focused on uh, career and and sort of future readiness for high school students. And um, our graduates, the majority of our graduates, are coming from uh, high need schools and are are telling us that. Uh, they the majority will go to two or four year college, but will also be working at the same time. And that's not not a, a new thing necessarily, uh, especially for for first generation students. Um, but I wonder, you know, we, I know you're you're no, not they're, a, they're, they're, that, that's a bit different. Uh, they're working, but they're working in jobs that uh, a don't require the education they're pursuing, and b are disconnected from it. So uh, they're 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 working to uh, essentially uh, provide living expenses. So they can continue to go to school, yep. uh, but uh, there's 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 really very little connection between that work and the um, you know good entry level digital job, you know fifty k or more a year with multiple career paths they're hoping to get on graduation. And in many cases, they'll continue working in that job after graduation, uh, which is the problem. Yeah, I guess my my thought is if we could do a better job aligning those part-time jobs, right, to, yeah. to better accommodate well, those great, students. Yeah, I've actually written about federal work study. And, you know, believe it or not, we have a federal program. There's a billion dollars that goes to college and universities around the country uh, and it subsidizes uh, uh, them uh, to give uh, students jobs on campus, cleaning bathrooms and serving in dining halls and washing dishes, mm. um, and uh, effectively uh, discourages colleges from uh, reaching out uh, to the private sector and connecting students with uh, real jobs uh, for real businesses they may actually go to work for uh, after they graduate. Um, so colleges are actually disincentivized to do that, uh, they're incentivized to keep them on campus in jobs that have nothing to do with their course of study. So, so there's, there's the bipartisan effort in Washington to try to reform uh, federal work study because it's that's absolutely broken. That's an easy fix. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> I'll, pu- I'll put an asterisk on, uh, on easy, but but I'm with you. Um, so if we if we start to better align uh, the types of experiences that young people are having and get universities to commit um, to making those more meaningful experiences, you think you think I, I would. Think well, I think the challenge we have a that, shot. The challenge is what I said before, which is that uh, right now colleges and universities organize this and they'll say, well, that's career services and career services is one office out of 50 often located on the periphery of campus, probably not open on nights and weekends, staffed by people who aren't high up in the hierarchy, not particularly respected. Mm -hmm. 
um, not a huge budget. Uh, and uh, the, the results are what you see. Uh, so, you know, are faculty going to take their cues from career services around uh, changing their uh, curriculum? No. Uh, how does that happen? I mean, we have a, I read a piece in TechCrunch uh, about a company called Ripen, R-I-I-P-E-N. It's really the first marketplace that connects real employers with real work projects directly with faculty. And it says, well, look, if you're teaching a, a, a course on, you know, communications, uh, let's, uh, you know, let's look at this, uh, this project from Exxon, uh, where they're, uh, they'd like, uh, 50 students in a communications course to produce this work product. And, uh, we'll make that a week long project, uh, for our students and incorporate that into the career, into the syllabus. And someone from Exxon on the other end is going to actually look at that work and provide feedback. And that's the deal. Um, that's interesting, right? Uh, that's potentially scalable in a way to better align uh, academic coursework with employer needs and reduce what we call hiring friction uh, by uh, uh, giving uh, employers kind of a sneak peek uh, at the capability of, uh, of candidates uh, before they have to make a hiring decision. Yeah. Um, that's promising, but uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see how sort of on-campus uh, you know, career services, uh, gets the, uh, the poll, uh, to, uh, sort of, uh, uh, change a campus's orientation. There are lots of presidents who are aware, uh, and, and boards of trustees who are aware of this, this issue, uh, but, uh, not, not many who, uh, have a clear idea of how they're going to solve it. Yeah. So, so you've talked about this idea of, of colleges and universities as staffing partner, um, and uh, just to to get us looking in the right direction, what are some models out there that you feel like are are at least scratching in the right direction and and that you feel should be watched? Yeah, look, uh, I think um, uh, you can look you can look at Talent Path, uh, which partners with colleges and universities and essentially uh, takes uh, new graduates and hires them and puts them through a boot camp uh, on campus um, where they're guaranteed a, a, a great uh, job in technology uh, and not taking any financial risk. Those are the kinds of connections. And of course, you know, uh, what, what, the, what they're tra- training on is they're training on, you know, a given employer's uh, specific technology stack, which no university faculty member can be expected to know, right? You're not going to know what Exxon's exact technology stack is no school is going to teach that uh but talent path because it has a relationship there uh will teach that uh and then we'll place those candidates at exxon so um that, those are the sorts of intermediate if you think about it the challenge we have is this is a many-to-many problem where you have thousands of institutions of higher education and millions of employers and no single institution is capable of managing the relationships at the level of depth that they need to be managed and no employers interested in doing so. They've got other priorities. Yeah. So the answer calls for intermediaries to stand between. And those intermediaries could be public. They could be not-for-profit. We think most of them will end up being for-profit because the ones that will scale fastest and furthest will be those with a commercial interest to scale the provision of purpose-trained entry-level talent to their clients. Um, so that's where we're, we're focused. But the idea is simple. An intermediary 
uh, with a deep uh, and broad connection uh, to the world of employers, much much deeper and broader than a career services office uh, could could have, uh, and hopefully where uh, the uh, intermediary is actually acting as the employer of record for a period of time, uh, reducing or eliminating hiring friction by allowing the end employer to try the talent before they have to buy the talent. That's how you're going to get throughput of tens and thousands, tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of young people into these good jobs that currently uh, they feel shut out of. To, uh, I want to, I want to respect your time. I know you have a, a, uh, you know, busy hour coming up. Um, Last question is, is just uh, thinking about friends of yours, right? A family who kind of gets it. Uh, they've read your book. They, they're thinking about these things and, and they're saying to you, uh, you know, I, I get it. It doesn't seem like the rest, right investment. What's one or two, um, like uh, what's the text that you send most frequently to open people, you know, another parent's mind uh, or another educator's mind about what the po- po- possibilities are for their 17 or 18 year old? No, look, I mean, I, uh, in the back of the book, we created a, a, a directory of these new faster and cheaper programs that again, uh, aren't leading to traditional blue collar industrial and building trade jobs. Not that those aren't good jobs, but we specifically excluded those. These are all faster and cheaper new pathways to good digital jobs that college grads are having an increasingly hard time getting themselves. Um, so what are they? They're boot camps, they're staffing models, they're apprenticeship models. They're all over the country. Um, there's a group uh, down in Florida uh, that took that directory, put it online. Uh, it's alternatives to college. Yeah. Uh, com, and it's a free directory now. So you don't have to buy the book. <laughs> you can go and look at alternatives to college and search on search on these uh, these new uh, these new pathways, and they're actually keeping it updated, which is terrific. Now I, I'm just looking at the site. Now there are nineteen thousand eight hundred thirty four uh, college alternatives on the site uh, right now, uh, and nineteen thousand jobs not re- open jobs not requiring a college degree. So um, that's not a bad place to start. Alternatives to college Ryan, I really appreciate it. I also want to give you a chance just to to plug the newsletter and and one of the ways that you and I connected was was through that. I think it's a great resource. Oh yeah, the uh, the Gap Letter comes out biweekly. Uh, you can find it at gapletter.com. It's uh, random, uh, hopefully semi organized musings on uh, the state of uh, uh, workforce and education and uh, how we're doing on trying to close America's skills gap. I hope. I hope I can have you back sometime soon. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks very much. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. 